Okay, so uh, last week, I think, we had uh, Jonathan Todd in the class, and I don't, a couple of people said that that's always a treat, I think, to hear somebody besides me, especially Jonathan, and so we're glad that he was able to be uh, here last week. Uh, so back to Philippians this morning. Uh, we're looking at chapter 2, as I said, verses 2 through 4. Uh, now, it's kind of... I don't know, a little weird or awkward to realize that the the letter changed topics up in chapter 1 and verse 27, even though we have chapter 2 as a, a chapter title. But we all know, right, that Paul didn't write this in these chapters, that these were added, you know, hundreds of years later, thousands of years later, actually, uh, uh, just for our convenience in finding our way around the Bible. So the the new topic... Paul changes his topic from dealing with himself in verses uh, you know, verses 19 to verse 26 of chapter 1 uh, uh, to talking about the Philippians and their situation in verse 27. And if you've been in here, you've heard me say it already, but I'll just say it one more time. The banner of this section of Philippians is chapter 1 and verse 27, where Paul says, let your life, I'm reading now, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul is exhorting the Philippians to live according to the gospel of Christ, which again reminds me of something else I've said, but I'll just say it for Ron and Carol because I know you all have mastered this concept already, but y'all haven't been here. So if you'll picture a triangle, okay, a triangle really helps us understand what's happening in this letter. At the top of the triangle is Christ. The body of the triangle in the middle of the triangle is the gospel, down here on the left-hand side, doesn't really matter what side, you have the Apostle Paul and his circumstances. He's in prison, etc. And then over here on the other side of the triangle, you can switch them if you want, you have the Philippian Christians with their situation and circumstances that overlap with Paul's in some regard. They were encountering some difficulty as Paul had done. So, so Paul is relating to the Philippians encouraging them in their relationship with Christ. Paul knew Christ. Paul's life was focused on the gospel. This is the common ground that Paul and the Philippians and Christ have. It's their common ground. So, so that, I call it, based on this other guy, I think I call it a three-way gospel-centric bond. Centered on the gospel, a three-way bond between Paul and the Christians in Philippi and Jesus, all right? And so, uh, let your life, Paul says to the Philippians, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That, that triangle is right in that phrase in chapter 1 and verse 27. All right, so everything flows from that. How do we... So really, what this is about is, how, how, how are we to live the Christian life? What does a Christian life look like? All right, Paul is explaining that. Now, uh, in chapter 2, he is giving an exhortation to the Philippians based on some challenges that they had in their happy community there in Philippi. He's encouraging them to unity and mutual 
consideration. Okay, so the title for the lesson this morning, even though you don't have a piece of paper in front of you, I had a technological glitch at home, uh, but the title of the lesson this morning is Christian Unity and Community in a Selfie Culture. You know what a selfie is, right? People take their phones, they swap, they, they take pictures of themselves. Okay, uh, and so how do we have Christian unity and community in a selfie culture. You may have heard of a book by a guy named Robert Putnam called Bowling Alone. I don't know if you've heard of that book or not, but in that book, Sociological Study, he's basically showing that community in our country has really dissolved. Uh, There's not a lot of community. And that gives us wonderful opportunities as a Christian church to love one another in such a way that the world can see the love of God in us, among us, and through us. As a matter of fact, I was sorely tempted, and I'm resisting the temptation, but in the back of my mind, looking at this text in Philippians 2, 2 through 4, is John 17, where Jesus at the end of his prayer says, Lord, I'm not just praying for my disciples. I'm praying for those who are going to believe in me. And I pray, this is, I I don't understand it, but it's very profound. He says, I pray that they, you remember what he says? Yeah, that they would be one as we are one. But then what he means by that, and he's saying this in prayer, Father, as you are in me and I am in you. He uses this language of interpenetration. My existence is in you and you are in me. In that same way, may they be in us so that the world would know First of all, that you have sent me, that that I'm the Savior. And then later on in that section, he says, so that they would know that the love that you have given me, I have given them. So there's a profound spiritual reality in that prayer. Obviously, it's Jesus praying. You would expect it to be profound. Uh, but, But that, I think that had a big impact on the Apostle Paul. Now, who cares? Why do we need to pay attention to these verses? We're, you know, mature Christians. We're sitting here in this room, et cetera. What need might we personally have, these people that I'm looking at right now, what need might we have for this text? Well, I'm reminded of the way that Rick Warren begins his excellent book, Purpose Driven Life. Anybody remember how how it starts? How does it start, Julie? It's not about you. That's how he starts this book. This life primarily isn't about you. He's going to go on to say, you didn't create yourself. You're not responsible for you being here. You don't create your own meaning. Okay? It's not about you. Now, uh, I had this teacher, Howard Hendricks, and he used to say this, a life wrapped up in itself makes a very small package. So, We all have this sinful inclination toward selfishness. Uh, If if you detect that in yourself, 
If you don't, just ask the person sitting in your row. They can help you uh, with that. But if, if, if you sense that in yourself, that's why we need this text in front of us this morning. Because we all tend to want what we want when we want it. I was reminded of this all over again. We were reading this uh, or looking at this marriage series by this guy, Paul Tripp, in our grace group last season. And he was talking about that very thing that he, and he has a really funny way, you know, he, he wants there to be breaks in traffic when he's pulling in. He wants there to be parking places when he's looking for one. He, you know, he just wants everything that he wants when he wants it. And I identify with that uh, very deeply. <laughs> I'm, I'm super selfish. And it's helpful for us to, uh, to recognize that and to understand that part of our salvation is to help us confront that sin in such a way that we recognize all the more our need for a Savior. Not just to save us from our sins so that we go to heaven when we die, but we have a Savior that's changing us into His likeness even now. And I'm, I'm going to say at the end, and I'll say it now so that maybe you'll hear it, Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of this text that we're getting ready to look at. That's why we keep our eyes on Him. When we take our eyes off of Him, when we don't consciously think about the fact that Christianity is about following a person. It is about having a Lord of our lives that is not us. It's Jesus Christ. And we all need that. Now, so selfishness, I think I hooked you a little bit with that. I think, you know, like, I don't know, maybe 75% of the people in the room were like, yeah, I'm pretty selfish. Here's another issue, and it's two sides of this coin. Uh, I'm going to call it relational superficiality. Relational superficiality. How you doing? Fine. How's it going? Fine superficiality. Uh, We protect ourselves. We don't know each other very well. Again, we're having these grace groups. I'm going to sit in front of a bunch of people this evening, and my primary goal is to recognize, like Kyle said, they're all going to be terrified because they're sitting in a room with a bunch of strangers that they do not know, and they don't, you know, it's, the tendency is to be superficial. The other side of that coin is, relational isolation. Uh, Some of us have challenges of friendship. I think you've heard Jimmy talk about this book, The Friendless American Male. Okay, Men are not necessarily known for having these strong relational bonds. And so this text, the Christian church, Jesus has saved us into what he calls a body, a family, a new creation. So if you ever struggle with, nobody knows me, nobody really cares and understands what it's like to be me, this text is about that. If you at times feel lonely and isolated, this text is designed to reawaken you 
to the significance of this Sunday school class, among other things, of this local church known as Grace of Anne, among other things, of the body of Jesus Christ as a significant source of your own meaning and security as a human being. That, that's what we're going to look at this morning. So, Christian unity and, a, and community in a selfie culture, because we all tend to be selfish, and we all need deeper relationships uh, in, our, in our Christian community, because we tend to be superficial. Okay, uh, three points. Number one, which we've already covered is the basis of this unity. It's really important not to skip over this. Uh, There are four, call them whatever you want, spiritual realities, four aspects of knowing God. Paul, Paul is moving, remember the triangle, Paul is moving from their, the Philippians' relationship with God to their relationship with each other, really kind of incentivized by their relationship with Paul, okay? But, but the first thing that Paul is reminding them of is their relationship with God, okay? All right, this is what he says in verse 1. Paul says, do you, do you see how the language is in our English Bibles? It wouldn't come across like this in, in the way Paul wrote it. Do you see what it says? So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, now I already talked about this, but what that means is this. If there is any, and there is, okay, or we can say it this way, because of the fact that Jesus Christ has become the ultimate encouragement for your soul. That, that's what he's saying here. Is that true for you today? That Jesus Christ is the ultimate satisfaction and encouragement to your soul. He's the never failing high priest. When you go to him with your cares and concerns, you are going to the one who laid his life down in love for you. Okay? Uh, and, and he's the one who says, I will never leave you, never forsake you. So, so believer, Christian this morning, check off the fact that Part of your existence as a human being in Christ is the fact that Jesus is an encouragement for you. All right, that's the first one. Second one, comfort from love. The the love of God is designed to comfort us. Lord, you know, I'm cracked and broken in a million places. Lord, I've got a million things that are not right in my world. His love is designed to comfort us you with all of your own unique needs as a broken human being living in a broken world, uh, God's love is adequate and sufficient, more so, more than adequate, okay? Uh, That's the second one. Third one, participation in the Spirit. The word is fellowship, communion with the Spirit of God. You're not alone in your body if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is living in you. And so you can at some level experience 
the existential reality that Jesus was talking to his father about in John 17. You and me, I and you. That's true for you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. One time, you, you can put your hand right here and say to yourself, there's another living in me. Now, that's not some like scary movie or anything. Uh, it's the reality of the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's ministry inside of you does all kinds of stuff. Leads you to exclusive loyalty in Jesus Christ. Teaches you about the significance of the gospel for your life. Bears witness with your spirit that you are indeed a child of God and nothing can pluck you out of His hand. Do you have that kind of assurance? Do you know that you know that your name is written on His hands in the book of life, that, that you're His. Do you know that? That's what the participation in the Holy Spirit does. Do you, do you sense the Holy Spirit convicting you, standing in your way at certain times with particular attitudes or choices of action that you might have? That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Convicting you of the fact that, yeah, I'm really not very connected here. Yeah, I've got a lot of superficial relationships here. As a matter of fact, even in this class, I don't know everybody very well, all right? Maybe that's the Holy Spirit wants to draw you in and, and minister to you, all right? Uh, participate in the Spirit, and then two for the price of one at the end, affection and sympathy, affection and compassion. This is the love of the Father for you. All right, that's the basis of the unity that, that, that Paul was appealing. That's, that's verse 2. Paul's appeal to the Philippians to have unity is based on the reality of their relationship with God. So, so first of all, he's appealing to them based on their relationship with God. And now, in verse 2, he's going, he's going to appeal to them based on their relationship relationships or dealing with their relationships with each other. And he's going to start with the whole group, but then he's going to narrow it down to individuals. This is a bizarre, that's probably too strong. This is an interesting, unusual appeal in verse 2. Verse 1, based on all these things, Christ's encouragement, the, the comfort from love, the participation in the Spirit. Based on all of that, do you see what the, really kind of what the exhortation or the command is in verse 2? It's right at the beginning of the verse. Complete my joy. Paul's over here in prison talking to the Philippians about their unity based on their relationship with God. And Paul says, based on all this that you have with God, make my joy complete. That's kind of an interesting thing for a guy to say. What does that imply? It implies that he loves them. It implies that his joy is not complete if they are not experiencing the full implications of life in Christ. Now, that same apostle in chapter 4 is going to say, and you know he's going to say it, I've learned how to be content in any and every situation. Remember he says that? And, and that's a fantastic text, and we're heading there. Uh, but here he says, my joy isn't full yet because there's more work to be done in your midst. And behind Paul stands the Lord Jesus who loves you in such a way 
that he longs for your faith to be full and complete. And it was for the joy that was set before him that he came and did what he, we're going to read about in verses 5 through 11 uh, to redeem you. And so those Philippians uh, are, are recognizing how much that apostle that they had come to love, loved them. Uh, do you, are you aware of the affection that, that you're on his heart, that you're on God's heart, that you're on his mind, that he loves you? That, that, he, that he has desires for you, plans. Do you, do you know that? That he has plans for you? That you're not alone in this world just making your way the best you can? That he's with you in this world? Uh, that's Paul's appeal. Make my joy complete. Now, just like we had four things in verse 1, he has four things here in verse 2. And I bet you can see pretty clearly the main idea. Because it's repeated a couple of times in verse 2. What is Paul exhorting them about? I'm sorry? Unity. Unity. Okay, now Mary, what makes you say that? Okay, did you hear her repeat a word, same? I want, do you see it in verse 2? Make my joy complete. Here's, here's the four ways you can do it. And there's, there's really only like three because he repeats one. Be of the same mind. The second one, same love. There's same mind, same love. Now, in, in the English, we have this word, this phrase, being in full accord. Uh, that's only one word that Paul wrote. And it's a word that means together in soul. Uh, Napoleon Dynamite, Dynamite was a movie several years back, and there was this funny character in there, and he was talking about this other guy, and he says, you know, we're pretty much soulmates. Or you've heard the phrase soul brother, okay? There's, there's something trying to be communicated there like we are on the same page. That's kind of what Paul was saying here. Together in soul, together in my, same mind, same love, together in soul, and then he repeats his concept of one mind. Now, what he isn't saying is, I want you guys to have the same theological viewpoints on every topic, and I want you to have the same taste in music, and the same, you know, preferences and how we do church and all that stuff. That's really not what he's saying. What he is saying is this. Here's the phrase, mindset. I want you to have the same mindset. What does that mean? I want you to, that your deepest loyalty, your highest love, what you deem the most important in life beyond everything else needs to be the same. So that when we start talking about Christ and the gospel, that transcends our different views on, you know, secondary issues, tertiary issues, which version of the Bible is the best, which, you know, teachers the most orthodox, which brand of Christianity is the right one and all that stuff. 
Okay, we have all those differences. We have different preferences. We think different thoughts about how church ought to, ought to happen and what, what real good music is and what good music isn't. We, we can differ on those things. But when we start talking about who the Savior is and what the gospel is, we ought to all be doing this. Yeah, that's right. The Son of God who gave himself for me. He died, he was buried, he rose again. I was a sinner, but I'm not anymore because he paid for my sin. That's what Paul's saying, same mindset on that. The same ultimate love so that we can all agree on that. That's, that's what he's saying here in verse 2. That's the appeal to unity. Now, that's kind of abstract and, you know, theoretical, all right, that we all ought to love and, and be on the same page in terms of the core elements of, our, of, of who God is and what he did for us in Christ. So Paul takes a couple of verses here to basically, uh, you've heard the phrase, where the rubber meets the road. He says, all right, now this is what that looks like. Having the same mindset ought to look like this in verses 3 and 4. And what he does in verses 3 and 4, again, as he's appealing to everybody in verse 2, he's going to appeal to individuals in verses 3 and 4. And he also, you, you can see this, there are two contrasts. Both verses don't do that, do this. He does that twice. He does it once in verse 3 and another time in verse 4. All right, so here's the first, how did I call this? Uh, I had a really nifty phrase. Uh, I guess I didn't write it on here. Uh, The first contrast in verse 3. Don't have anything to do with selfish ambition. That's the first word. Uh, Up in verse 17 of chapter 1, just glance up to chapter 1 and verse 17. Very same word. He's talking about different people preach Christ for different reasons. One group of people proclaims Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely. Paul says, have nothing to do with that. Selfish ambition. Okay? I want what I want when I want it. I'm using you to get what I want. Okay? I'll ask you how you're doing But really what I want to get to is the part about me. (laughs) Paul says, have nothing to do with selfish ambition or, and here's the more significant term in verse 3, my Bible has conceit. It's a double negative. No selfish ambition, no conceit. That word conceit is empty glory. Now, in verse 7 of chapter 2, We're going to read that Jesus emptied himself, very same word. And then at the end of this text about Jesus, we're going to read that uh, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, So this passage about Christ starts with emptying and ends with glory. And here Paul says, I don't want you to have anything to do with empty glory, superficial bragging. Remember, Jeremiah says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the rich man boast in his riches or the strong man boast in his strength. If you want to brag, brag about this, that you know God. Remember that passage? I think it's chapter 9. Maybe it's 23. It's in Jeremiah somewhere. Uh, No selfish ambition. No 
empty glory, conceit. But in humility, which is the opposite of selfish ambition and conceit, in humility, consider others more significant than yourselves. Think of others as more significant than yourselves. Now, here's the second contrast, verse 4. Hey, Fred, can you move over just a little bit so I can... There you go, perfect. Uh, Just need to see the clock. Uh, Let's see, verse 4. Let each of you, see each of you individually, not look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, I don't know if this creates any tension in your mind, but I remember conversations about this text that got into the area of, man, as a, as a Christian, am I just to think about you all the time and never pay attention to my own needs? Am I going to lose myself if I follow the instructions in this passage? And I don't know if that raises attention in your mind or not. Uh, maybe another tension that it might touch on a little bit in, in some of our, the way we regard ourselves some of us can be really intimidated, can feel uh, really insecure, can feel really inadequate, that we don't measure up, that we're just not comfortable in our own skin. Others of us, and, and certainly in that congregation in Philippi, a little too comfortable in our own skin a little too preoccupied with how great we are and how great our thinking is. This this exhortation navigates that really well. Uh, He says, don't look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In humility, count others as more significant than yourself. So it's this great understanding of I'm made in the image of God. I, God has saved me and brought me into His kingdom. I have incredible value in Jesus Christ. That's designed to blow a little air and significance and confidence into those of us who tend to feel like we're always on the deficit side of life. I'm just not eat, not. I'm just uneasy. I'm, I'm intimidated. I'm, I'm inadequate. This is designed, all that stuff in verse 1, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, is designed to give you hope and give you a sense of, I'm loved. I'm safe. I'm in His care. I have a life that matters to God and to others. And again, to, to those who are more on the other side of things, this is designed, and really this is kind of the sharp end of the exhortation, is uh, think about somebody else once in a while, not just yourself. Uh, don't poke anybody right now. I, I'm not trying to get anybody in trouble, okay? But uh, guys, you know, we do have that tendency to be kind of selfish, and uh, this is designed to help us think about somebody else. 
Now, let me just offer a couple of practical suggestions about how this appeal to unity for them in their relationships to show mutual care and concern based on their relationship with God, what that may look like. All right, I've already mentioned grace groups. Uh, If you're in a grace group, and I hope you are in a grace group, as you feel terrified, as you walk into that space and sit down and just incredibly uncomfortable being with all those people, or if you're the other way, you know, you can't wait to get with all those people because you're an extrovert. Uh, we, we have a model couple right up here, uh, and I'm only picking on them because we're kind of one too. Uh, I may fake it better than you do, but maybe not. Uh, and, and this is no comment on the on the alms at this point, but we were I was talking to Kathleen about this yesterday. There are some people when they get in a large group, if they feel anxiety, their mouth just starts working, and they fill the anxiety with verbiage. It doesn't necessarily matter what they're saying; they just talk. Uh, others just like what they have to say, and they're good at expressing themselves, and they just they just like to talk. Other people, again, find it extremely painful to be around people like that. Now, unfailingly, after this evening, when we drive home, my wife is going to be energized. She's going to be just buzzing. Her tank's going to be full. She's had all these conversations with all these women. I'm going to be exhausted, okay? We're going to get in the car. I'm going to say, that was exhausting. And uh, she's going to laugh at me when I say that. Uh, But the point is, I hope that you will go to one. I hope that you will take yourself into that place where you're going to think, they don't really care if I'm here or not. It doesn't matter if I'm here or not. But it does matter. Because this is the God-ordained way of connecting you with the body. One, one, One way. Okay, uh, so grace groups. Another thought would be Wednesday night. We have Wednesday night meeting right in this space. We open up these walls. There are uh, chairs in circles. You can come a little early, earlier now, like 5.15-ish, 5.30-ish, and you can sit down at a table and you can eat with people. Now, some of you, it would be a stretch, like Kyle said. It'd be, it'd be challenging just to come here and you know, scan it out ahead of time, find somebody you know, and just go zoop and sit with them and be comfortable. That's great, okay, if that's where you're at. Others of you who are already planning to be here, maybe the step for you would be to find somebody that you don't know so very well and be comfortable enough in your own skin, and I even see some single women in here, socially, you know, you don't have as many chips in your mind as as others. But yes, you do. You may need to remember this on the way over here. God loves me. There's affection. There's encouragement. There's compassion. I am loved. I am valuable. I'm significant. And walk in here like you're the Queen of England and and decide who of the many people that you're going to bless with your presence. That would be a great thing, okay? It would be a great thing. Now, here's what I do. In that situation, and I, I told you, I fake it, all right? I, I, you know, I just learn how to fake it. But I, I don't fake a genuine interest in people's lives. I don't know why. Probably I got a lot of it from my mom. I'm genuinely interested in you and in your story. 
Your story is fascinating to me. Uh, And so I ask simple questions. Jesus asked simple questions. The disciples asked stupid questions. The first time they saw Jesus, all right, the Messiah, the Son of God, you know what they asked him? This is what I ask. Where do you live? It's not hard, friends. Now, you know, you may forget. You may not know where it is. I don't know where. Everybody always tells me they live in some neighborhood. I don't know where that neighborhood is. So we're off to the races. But that's the first question I usually ask. Where do you live? The second question I ask is, what do you do when you're not here? That kid, Daniel, that got baptized in the first service, saw him in the bathroom. I said, hey, and I forgot already. What do you do when you're not here at Grace Event? I'm a student at university. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, you said that, didn't you? That's usually how it goes, okay? Uh, and then the question also I like to ask is, particularly if people have an accent that I may point out, I'll ask them, where did you grow up? Because uh, they grew up somewhere, and it's interesting many times to find out. That's, that's, those are my big three, okay? And then from there, there's usually something else that we can explore that. Uh, so I would encourage you, here's, here's what he says. Here's what he says. When you're sitting down at that table Wednesday night, don't look to your own interests only. Oh, I'm feeling so insecure. Who am I going to say? Don't worry about that. He says, look also to the interests of others. You're aware of your own needs. You're aware of your own challenges. You're aware of your own vulnerabilities culturally, even at Grace of Van. Okay, fine. Other people have them too. They're struggling with stuff. You may find that you have some stories to tell that are very powerful in the life of somebody else. Might be somebody younger. Just show up. Think about somebody else besides yourself. Okay? Okay. Uh, now, the, the last two things I'll say before we pray is this. Next to the last thing I would say is this. Listen. When they say something to you, listen to them. Have you ever talked to somebody who's a poor listener? I cannot think of anything less gratifying. I don't love talking to people. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not that guy that, ha- you know, I, but when I do and they don't listen fine, you know. So listen. Some of you talk too much. Some of you talk too much about yourselves. Ask some questions. Listen to other people. They have opinions too. They may not be as good as expressing them. They may not have the experiences that you've had, but they've had some experiences. All right, here's the last thing I want to say. Don't settle for superficiality. It's easy to do right here in this class. Settle for superficiality. We just come in and go out. We don't engage. We don't walk over to somebody. Sometimes that's the most courageous thing you can ever do. A guy wrote a book about it. Just walk across the room. Just walk across the room. Sorry. Just walk across the room. Hey, I'm John. You know, what's your name? Yeah, you know, just make a connection. Take a deep breath. Lord, it's terrifying. Make a connection. Don't settle for superficiality. Um, I had something else I was going to say along with that, but I can't remember what it is now. Uh, So this is the exhortation to us to think about the needs of others. Uh, Listen. 
pay attention. Uh, Let's close in prayer. Father, we give you praise for the realities of verse 1, that there is encouragement from our relationship with a Savior who did not quit. He took that cross all the way to the hill, and he was crucified on it. He didn't quit, and he will never quit. He accomplished the eternal purposes of God, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. Like we heard in the first service, nobody else is saying that in our culture today, that our Savior is sufficient, and he's loving, and he's ever-present to bear all of our burdens. Lord, so many of us are guilty of bearing our burdens alone, of not talking to you, of not praying to you, seeking your face and asking and knocking. Please, Lord, renew our sense of urgency and desperation. May we take our burdens to the Lord and leave them there. And then, Father, uh, may we not uh, settle for superficiality. May we take another step closer. Uh, May we take another step higher. Uh, May we take another step lower and help drag somebody out of a tough spot uh, to where we may be. Uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, this text. We do pray that you would help us recognize selfishness when we see it, and that we would all, Father, spend some time thinking and in putting this into action in our own lives, in our relationships with one another. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.